the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 488 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today's episode is brought to you by Leader. Check out leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R, to find out how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention the promo code Carry, you'll get 20% off your first year. And by Belay, get your free copy of their ebook, Delegate to Elevate, by texting the word Carry to 55123 today. That's Carry to 55123. Well, today's guest is Scott Miller. He is currently Franklin Covey's Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership, leading the strategy, development, and publication of the firm's best-selling books on thought leadership. He also hosts the Franklin Covey-sponsored On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast, the world's largest and fastest-growing weekly leadership podcast. He also authors a leadership column for Inc. every week and hosts the iHeart radio show, Great Life, Great Career. He's got a fascinating background. And we also, probably my favorite part of the interview is when he and I talk about self-awareness and growing emotional intelligence. He gets really vulnerable halfway through the interview. And that's my favorite part, you know, because there's sort of the, the public journey, but there's also the private journey. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've had to grow an awful lot as a leader. I need to continue to keep growing. And Scott gets really transparent about that. So we're going to talk about what top leaders have in common, his crash course in self-awareness, uh, being mentored by Stephen R. Covey, and how to grow a company after the founder dies are really important issues. Something like 96% of all businesses die after the founder disappears. That also happens to churches as well. So how do you do that? Uh, we're going to talk about all of that today. Well, I heard the other day that 50% of people are still planning to leave their current jobs in 2022, which is insane. And by now, you've heard me talk about what my friends over at Leader, the first ever people development software, are doing to try to transform this, right? They're trying to change the great resignation into the great resolution. So they're on a mission to develop 1 million leaders by helping leaders just like you engage and grow your teams. So here's the reality. People want to be led. They want to be developed. They don't necessarily just want to be managed. So how do you do that, right? Well, you do that through Leader. Leader will help you develop leaders at scale with consistent one-on-one -on -one meetings clear goals, and regular feedback. So check out leader.com, L-E-A-D-R.com, for how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, for 20% off your first year at leader.com, L-E-A-D-R.com. And as a church leader for a growing church, you probably eventually realize you can't do everything on your own. Not well, anyway. That was a very painful journey for me in the early days of my leadership. And I had to realize I've got to be a visionary uh, and I've got to let go a lot of tasks that I would spend countless hours on trying to get done. And what I learned is I always felt guilty about delegating. And then I realized over time, you know what? Other people are going to do these tasks better. I've got a very narrow lane for my gifting. Well, if you're ready to reclaim your time and talents by delegating, our friends at Belay can show you exactly how to do that. Their first client was a pastor, and although they serve business leaders as well, they have ministry-minded virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media managers for growing churches who know the demands on church leaders all too well and what it takes to get them delegating and back to ministry. In fact, if you have a great assistant, and I have used assistants, VAs, through Belay, they will tell you, give that to me. And that is fantastic. What a gift. So if you want to start delegating, Belay is offering their latest book, Delegate to Elevate, absolutely free. In this ebook, you're going to learn how to reclaim time to focus on that which only you can do. And you'll delegate to unleash the powerful multiplying effects of entrusting others. So to get your free copy of Delegate to Elevate, simply text my name, the word Carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 today. In no time, you'll be back to doing what only you can do and uh, you'll be delegating. So that's uh, get the book by texting Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 today. Scott, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. 
Carrie, such a pleasure. Thank you for the spotlight and the platform today. Oh, you're so welcome. So you, like me, have gotten the opportunity to interview hundreds of fascinating leadership experts. You've got volume one, I guess, of Master Mentors. So you've taken 30 of your first 150 interviews and kind of condensed it into some incredible wisdom, which is great. But I mean, you've talked to Arianna Huffington, Ryan Holiday, Liz Wiseman, Adam Grant, and so many others, uh, General Stanley McChrystal. What are some, because I get asked this question a lot, so I'd love your take. What are yeah. some common characteristics sure. of top tier leaders that you've seen? You know, I interviewed Deepak Chopra yesterday, and there oh, aren't wow. two people more dissimilar than Scott Miller and Deepak Chopra, uh -huh. right? Okay. But I tell you, what all the guests have in common, if that matter, the leaders, my answer might surprise you, is it's it's probably not character, mm. although I think they all have strong character for the most sure. part, and that's probably not competence. They're all competent, or they wouldn't be in their positions. You know, I think there's two things that I recognize that is a commonality amongst everyone on the podcast and leaders that I admire. One is they have an abundance mindset. They have what Dr. Covey, Franklin Covey's co-founder, would call a abundance mentality. There isn't a scarce mm. bone in their body. They're strategic, they're shrewd, they're smart, but they also have an abundance mindset. There's enough to go around, right? Enough mm. love, attention, fame, credit, budget, income, readers. They all share this idea of living their life through an abundance mentality. Another one is that they have an indefatigable work ethic. Mm. I mean, these people just work hard. They outwork everybody. In fact, most yeah. times, they aren't any smarter than you and I. They didn't go to an <laughs> Ivy League school that you and I couldn't have gotten into. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But what they do is they rise earlier and they go to sleep later and they manage their day fiercely well. Their intensity in terms of their focus, their ability to say yes or say no, not to get caught into boondoggles. They're actually usually uh, quite fiercely deliberate on what they do and don't do. They just outwork people and their days are usually more productive than others because they're so disciplined and focused on what it is they're trying to accomplish. It's often not fame or even right. money. Most of them have that and they have wealth or whatever if they don't, but they're just maniacally focused on accomplishing what they're setting out to do and no one's going to stop them. Well, that is a really interesting thing because most of the people on your podcast and a lot of people on mine they're not doing this to make money. They have made no. their money, right? And yeah. a really interesting question is, what do you do when you no longer have to work, right? And that would be most of your guests, which is which is a really I interesting would, thing. I wouldn't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You've got kids, right? You're like, I got I to gotta put, put food on the table. Let's talk about abundance mentality because I think yeah. sometimes that can seem very woo-woo, very new age. Yeah. And yet yeah. I really believe it is a game changer and it is something, yeah. I, I think I naturally come by abundance mentality, but I think I've gotten better at it. I think that I felt a little more, you know, they talk about productive paranoia. I had a lot more of that 30 years ago than I have today. I don't see people as enemies or rivals, maybe a worthy yeah. rival in the Simon Sinek, Adam yeah. Grant yeah. kind of way. But but yeah. how, does, how does abundance mentality factor in to success, Scott? Well, first of all, I think scarcity is a natural human default. This is not a bad thing. You know, good people can have scarce thoughts. Right. Bad people can have abundance thoughts. So I think first is it's common. It's 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 uh it's frequent that as individuals we have some sense of competition or jealousy or insecurity. That's part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to demonize that at all. No, no, no. You know, a lot, you know, you know. You know Look at Ukraine, right? Look what's going on in the world in many areas, and people are desperate to get bread, right? And water, and electricity. You know, I like to think of myself as an abundant person, and if war breaks out, I got three boys to feed. You know, I might be slipping in the grocery store at nighttime to feed my boys after day ten, versus starving, right? And I think myself as a high character person. Don't judge me on that on your podcast. You know, you I'll call you for ten days and see if your kids need food. Uh, Here's my point. All of us have a sense of scarcity about us. Sure. I think what elevates us as effective leaders, as great parents, as great community members is how can we check those natural tendencies to be scarce and replace them with an abundance mindset? It is a mindset to go into every conversation, whether you want to be right or do what's right, hmm. whether you want to be the smartest person in the room, the genius in the room, or to ignite the genius of others. You know, you'll never have enough, Carrie, until you've defined how much is enough. Fame, credit, love, worth, 
budget share money. And once you've defined how much is enough for you, it's much easier to have an abundance mentality. But I would say going into every situation, asking yourself, how can both of us win? What Do I know the other person's win? Hmm. Do I know what is a successful outcome? Have I asked them or have I just maybe presupposed it? Have they asked me, what is my win? Because a lot of us sometimes are so focused on the other person's win, we become a martyr and a victim. And that's not a healthy relationship either. So I like to remind myself in every conversation, every podcast, every relationship, every business deal, do I know the other person's win? And can I behave myself towards that in the hopes that they'll do the same for me? If they don't, then I'll protect myself. Mm. But abundance mentality is not about being generous, how much money you give in the collective collection plate at church or Mm. the synagogue or mosque or how much time you give, but it's a mindset around, do you know how much is enough for you? And do you have another person's win in mind as much as your own? What are some surprises you've seen in top leaders? Like you've been doing the podcast for a number of years, but before you started interviewing or connecting with people of that caliber on a regular basis, like what are some things you're like, yeah, I never would have guessed that, if anything? Probably access. I, you know, we forget sometimes that these big celebrities are just like you and I. And at 930 at night, they're in their bedroom watching International House Hunters and they're on their Instagram feed and they have an email account just like you and I. And their son or their daughter is having social problems just like yours and mine. So mm-hmm. they're no different than you and I. They just have chosen to typically live their life in the public. And so I think access to them is unprecedented. Everybody's got a couple of email accounts. Everybody's got a home address. Everyone's got a mobile phone number. Everyone's got a Instagram and an and email you know, messaging system. And they see your message, whether they can or cannot respond to it is a different story, but they see your message. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, perhaps their assistant does, but access is easier than you might think it is. Yeah. And, and to that note, because I get this question a lot too, for this show, we've had some dream guests and I'm, I'm just like blown away by who said yes to this. But How do you go? Now, you have the backing of Franklin Covey. I mean, an incredible company and the whole deal. But how do you go about, you know, arranging to meet with some of these very hard to meet with people? Well, first and foremost, you're right. We do have the benefit of the Franklin Covey brand that's been hard earned over 40 years. And I've been an associate for 27 years. So I myself have a reputation of making and keeping promises and commitments throughout my life. So a lot of the access comes from referrals, right? I'll have an interview with Arena Huffington and she knows Rupert Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch knows so. And so, you know, if I have a good interview and I do my job well by prepping for them and treating them with respect and delivering all the things I said I would, then they're going to ambassador me. So one is making sure that you've behaved yourself into a reputation of being credible, mm. of being referenceable. The second is you got to ask. People can't say no unless you ask. I don't know if my odds are, you know, one out of every 10 requests, but we have a pretty good batting average. We have a big network. Everybody kind of knows everybody. If they don't, their publicist knows their publicist, that kind of stuff. But I'd like to think it's a combination of a bit of bravado is, you know, I've been chasing one particular person for three years and they keep saying yes and their publicists keep saying no and then they say yes and the publicist says no. And uh-huh. I'm going to get you, Brian Grazer. You're going to come <laughs> on the podcast, Brian. There you so go. I look forward to seeing you. I think the two big things are recognizing no one can help you if you don't ask. No one can help you if you don't know you need help. And they're just like you and I, right? right. They're writing books. They have businesses. They have brands. And so they want the publicity and the connection with the audience as much as someone else does. So don't don't overinflate someone's uh, celebrity or influence with still their need to build their influence and build their brand and wear them down. Oftentimes, oftentimes they don't even know you're asking, right? It's the publicist or the agent or the literary person that says no. And if you actually saw them somewhere, they'd say, oh yeah, I'd be happy to come on your podcast. I mean, as long as you're not asking them ambush questions or you're doing, you know, Barat kind of things, right? That's, you know, appropriate for him, but not for my brand. Uh-huh. I make sure that every guest has a great experience. We're on time, we're ticked, we're tied. I've read their book cover to cover if I can and treat them with respect. And then if I need to ask them for an introduction, 10 times out of 10, they say yes. 
That is really good to know. And that's something I should note because I, I rarely follow up with alumni and ask them for anything. And I should probably do that. I should probably do that a little bit more because they've had good experiences. Do you have, because I'm getting this question a lot too, so I'm asking on behalf of my audience, but do you have a cold call template? Like even, you know, a, a typical way you would approach someone that you don't know, don't have a mutual connection with. It's like yeah. you found yeah. you found them on social or you found their email addresses are surprisingly public. And I've gotten yeah. some very big name guests just by Googling an email address and yes. um, finding that they answered. Like it's crazy. Yes. So what my cold call script is called Drew Young. And okay. he's the gentleman that helps to produce our podcast. We met we Drew. Yeah, 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 yeah. He helped us set up. And so I'll tell you kind of my secret weapon is I, I you know, I'm, I'm a fairly ferocious person, big personality, somewhat yeah. charismatic, loud. Drew is the opposite. He's very quiet. He's very calm and very demure. He oozes credibility. He oozes nonchalantness, nonchalantness, if that's a word. And so Drew's kind of my secret weapon, right? When my style doesn't work or isn't the right style for the potential guest, we sick Drew on him. Yeah. And we Drew goes after them and Drew has an amazing ability to be disarming. It's all very genuine. It's not a, it's not a charade. This is who he is. My blood pressure is sort of off the charts and his is sometimes you got to resuscitate him. <laughs> but it works well when that person responds well to that type of overture. Might be the publicist, might be the agent or the person themselves. Generally speaking, I would remind all your listeners and viewers, if you're, you know, if you're looking for someone to come on your podcast or come to your fundraiser or speak at your event, don't get confused with their public image because don't believe all their press. They still are very interested in giving back. Most mm. of them have an abundance mentality. They love the opportunity to talk to your guests, whether it sells a book or books a keynote. Most of these people are still in it for all the right reasons. And they want to come on and, and if they can have something to share that will help your listeners, your audience, your congregation, they're going to do it. Oh, that's good to know. How do you work with someone with a radically different personality than you? I think one of the traps of leadership <laughs> is we tend to look for, you know, Scott number two, and we look for those characteristics. Yeah. It's really yeah. fun that you and Drew have almost opposite personalities. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a slippery slope, right? First, it takes self-awareness. Right. It takes deep self-awareness to understand what's it like to be in a meeting with Scott Miller? What's it like to be on a webcast with Scott or a podcast or share the stage or work a trade show booth or take tickets in line? I have to be under, I have to be really understanding and self-aware of what it's like to be on the other side of a relationship with me. And once I know that, then I can figure out how to complement my strengths and my weaknesses. I have them. I have to be very vulnerable. I think vulnerability is a leadership competency. Mm -hmm. Just like managing the PL and calculating margin and EBITDA, vulnerability is a new leadership competency where you can talk about your strengths, talk about your weaknesses, teach through your weaknesses, and then talk openly about the things you do well. I'm not a very good linear thinker. Hmm. I am I am a great executor. I'm a big person, big, big um, vision person, but I don't always get sequence right. Like if you were to name, you know, 14 steps in a process, I might get eight of them right. And I might mix up a few because, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to process necessarily. Sure. But the more self-aware you are, the more you have the courage and the vulnerability to compliment yourself with people who aren't like you. Now, some people I hire are like me. I don't want to hire everyone who's Drew because I thrive on high energy. Drew has lots of energy, but it's more sustained and more calibrated than mine. I think it comes down to just knowing, knowing who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are and being very comfortable talking about them and therefore building a team around them. So you've got your book, Master Mentors, out of, what was it, about 150 podcasts? You chose 30 that you would highlight. The, and the that, people ask me, what's your favorite episode? It's like choosing between your children. I just don't want to do it. Now, there are definitely some at the bottom of the list and a bunch at the top. But you had to, you had to make the cut at 30. How did you determine who made it and who didn't to this book? Yeah, I'll be very transparent with you. So Franklin Covey is a public company, so they have to approve my books. And so we've had some guests on that went a bit sideways, and we may or may not have aired their episode sure. because they just you know said things that were outrageous and and weren't appropriate to air. So that went into the can. And they were such big celebrities, they never knew, quite frankly, right? Right, yeah. You've they were there. waiting for the episode to come yeah. out. 
Yeah. Now, they weren't waiting. Like, yeah, exactly. Although you'd be surprised at how many big celebrities text me and say, I thought I was hearing next week. I'm thinking, seriously, you were on you were on Ellen yesterday. Why do you care if my episode airs? Uh, I, 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 I picked them on several criteria. One was I allow every master mentor to vet their chapter. So they have editorial control. What's interesting is too, is the bigger name they are, the more they trust me. Like Seth right. Godin, didn't even read it. Scott, I trust you, just do it. And the smaller celebrity, they made like 40 edits, right? So I get that there's an inverse correlation in their celebrity and maybe self-confidence. But really the criteria was, did I think that the insight would resonate with a broad audience? Mm. You know, when I, when I actually pitched this book to a different publisher, a publisher who's published many of my books behind me, they passed on it. They said, no, it's too episodic. Everything needs like a baseball theme or a leadership theme mm. or a heart theme. And I said, no, it doesn't. And thank you. And you're mistaken. And so I went to HarperCollins and you know, the book has sold, you know, gosh, 40,000 copies and I can't keep up with the keynotes on it. Congratulations. And, um, I've just, you know, just, just written Master Mentors Volume 2. The big idea there is it's very episodic. I wrote a book and one chapter is about abundance and the next is about brain health. And there's another is about, you know, introverts and extroverts. Another one around self-discipline and choosing your identity. It's kind of chicken soup for the soul intentionally because I wanted the reader to open it up and no matter what chapter they started on or stopped on, they probably could find a transformational insight that might work for them in their marriage, as a parent, as a spouse, as a neighbor, as a friend, as an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, as an employee, someone who'd lost their job, someone who just found their job. So the criteria was, obviously, I spread it across people of different genders and races and, and um, you know, uh, competence profiles. It was also people I liked. Right. I got I got on the podcast. I liked them and thought, you know what? There's a nugget in there. I'm going to share that because oftentimes, Carrie, you know, some of the biggest wisdom from the guests comes after you've stopped recording. That's true. And they go on and talk and say, oh my gosh, why didn't you say that? So many of this isn't, many of the insights here aren't from the podcast. They were from in the green room or perhaps we shared a stage somewhere and I had a story to share about them. Oh, that's really neat. What Give us a, a sample of some of the insights, the transformations that hit you personally the most. Yeah. So master mentor number one is a man named Nick Vujicic. Many of your audience may know him. He's been He's on a, the show, yeah. Uh, Australian, was he on your show? Yeah. Yeah. Australian by birth, Texan now by choice. And Nick was born with no arms and no legs and is obviously a large presence in the evangelical world. And and he uh, was at my house for dinner one night, a couple, couple times, and I really became much more aware, Carrie, of my level of gratitude in life, which was kind of low at that point. Mm. I, I share in the book some tender stories around how accidentally Nick taught me the value of gratitude. And the big idea here is that in this chapter, we can live our lives through three lenses. I have to, I ought to, or I get to. I have to get up at 2 a.m. and deliver a keynote to Dubai electronically, or I ought to, or I get the privilege. I get to take out the garbage cans at midnight. I get to terminate someone because they're not happy here and we're not happy here and they need to find their joy somewhere else. This power of living your life from I ought to, I have to, to I get to, I think is remarkable. Seth Godin taught me the value of being fearless versus reckless. Hmm. I think much of my life, I confused the two. I thought I was being fearless by, you know, calling out the elephant in the room or, you know, always discussing the non-discussable or saying what's on my mind. And then I realized, no, that's being reckless, reckless with my brand, reckless with someone else's feelings. I used to be that person that just kind of, you know, said it like it was and, you know, always called out the whatever it was. And that was kind of selfish. I was actually being really reckless, not always being fearless and knowing what the difference was. Stebbin Graham, another one, right? A, a well-known author, celebrity, you know, uh, entrepreneur. Stebbin Graham talked about identity. Stebbin Graham is the life partner to Oprah Winfrey, um, 30 years. And imagine being, quote, married. I don't think legally, but that's their business, not mine. 30 years. Imagine being in relationship with the most famous human being in the world mm -hmm. by many points. How do you find an identity outside of that? Mm. And Stebbin teaches the idea of most of us are just living the lives, living the identities that our parents chose for us, that our caretakers, our guardians, our 
our priests, our ministers, our first grade teachers. And instead of living and fulfilling the identity that your parents chose for you because they were engineers, therefore you should be engineers because they were risk adverse, things means you should be risk adverse, choose your identity. Hmm. And that came to me in my late 40s, my late 40s. And there's other, like 27 other like that that hmm. I think could hit a broad audience. Why, why your late are. 40s? Nobody's How did that hit you in your late 40s? Because I was reckless and immature and self-serving and scarce. I mean, you know, I was married when I was 41. I'm 53 now. Okay. So I was married late in life. My wife and I had three boys in five years. Note to listener, don't do that. <laughs> don't have three boys in five years. But I think I kind of grew up. I was a bit of a swashbuckling single guy and focused on my career. In my 40s, I got married and got humbled real quick, right? Uh, by both my my new role as a spouse and then quickly as a parent. And then as a, a leader, as an executive leader in a public company, I became a member of the executive team when I was 42. That's a pretty, you know, pretty mm -hmm. significant role to be a named executive officer in a public company where the SEC has, you know, got their eye on you literally. Mm -hmm. And so do all the shareholders and employees. Made some mistakes, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back, nothing egregious or immoral or unethical, but you learned a lot of lessons. My boss once told me, Scott, you're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match. And that was a good conversation for me to, you know, stop doing some of the things that I was doing. But I think I just matured later in life. I had a lot of success professionally early, but not a lot of probably um, interpersonal success, I would say. There you go. Do you mind drilling down on that a little bit? Because we do have a lot of young leaders listening here. And I look at it this yeah. way. I've made a lot of mistakes when I was a young leader. I'm trying to help them avoid my stupid tax that I had to pay. And what were, because you do have a big personality. I mean, that we're 20 minutes into this and I can see that and saw that in prepping for the conversation. How did that work against you? And how did it work for you in the first 20 years of your leadership? That's a profound question. One is I've had to learn how to play small mm -hmm. because naturally I play big. Big personality, loud voice, cast a big shadow. I like the attention. Mm. Everything I do is bigger and better. I am shock and awe. Dinner party, three people, no, 30. Balloons, 12, no, 1,200. Confetti, 30,000, no, 30 million. I do everything big. And that that's good at yeah. certain areas of your life, but right. you also can shrink other people. And people can't find their voice around you. So I've had to learn when to play big and when to play small, when to enter a meeting and when to leave a meeting mm. to say, you know what? You all got this. You don't need me here. In fact, if I'm here, I'll probably actually sidetrack it and wreck it. I'm going to come back in 35 minutes. Share with me your best proposed idea. So I've had to learn how to play big and how to play small. I've had to learn that my personality isn't everyone's cup of tea. Mm. You know, I get up at four o'clock every morning. I go to bed at 9.30, but I get up at four o'clock every morning, seven days a week. I write my column for Inc. Magazine, my podcast, research, my blog, my books, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm raring to go at five o'clock in the morning. Like I'm on fire at five o'clock. And if I'm giving a keynote somewhere or I'm at a, a program and someone's walking the door at 7.15, I've had people say, whoa, back up. You're, you're like in my space, dude. You gotta back up. So I have to be more mindful of what it's like again to be around Scott Miller. I've really had to develop a sense of self-awareness. I'm a fairly anxious person. Hmm. Not anxious like anxiety, but I'm always in movement. You know, yesterday, Deepak Chopra talked about um, the process of doing versus the process of being. Sure. A lot of us are human doings, not human beings. I'm a human doing. Hmm. I'm always in motion. And it's where most of my success in life has come from. But I probably need to be a little more thoughtful around being a human being. I'll tell you another thing that I'll, I'll end with is, as you can tell, I'm a very efficient person. I'm very productive. Yeah. As the chief marketing officer of Franklin Covey for a decade, I was often interviewed, Carrie, by the press. Tell me about Dr. Covey's seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. <laughs> and I would say, no, the book was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
Efficiency and effectiveness sound similar, but they're very different. Uh One is not better than the other. I was the poster boy for efficiency, kind of still am for most of my life, getting things done, checking things off, moving things forward. And what I realized is that you cannot be efficient in relationships. You can Mm -hmm. only be effective. And that concept was lost on me even working for the company for 25 years until my 40s where I realized, oh, so how I wash the car and how I write a blog and how I take out the garbage cans needs to be different than how I conduct a meeting and how I have a one-on-one conversation. Because oftentimes our biggest strengths when overplayed become our weaknesses. So with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. For those of you who can relate like me, don't, don't, become someone else. I don't want to lose my efficiency. It's what's built my brand and my wealth and my career. But it's also when I'm in trouble in relationships is because I've tried to metaphorically check them off, get them done and move it along. I've, I've learned that one too over the years. I'm, I'm always curious, Scott, about what makes people tick. That's been a big part of my journey. I'm a few years older than you, but not that far ahead. Do you have any idea what shaped you into that loud, um, efficient, Oh yeah, I know exactly. determined? Yeah. yeah. Do you mind sharing? I know exactly. Both my parents are fairly passive and quiet people. I call them both probably introverts. Uh, when I was, and I was, I was always a bubbly person, but I wasn't an aggressive person or right. some friends call me ferocious. And I mean that in a good and probably bad way. Huh. I think I, I think I looked around the city where I was born and I was from, I'm from Florida. I'm, I'm the east, on the East coast. I have a bit of an East coast personality. doesn't work so well in Utah, yeah, <laughs> different podcasts. Uh, but I think I looked around and the people I thought were successful, how I defined success often materially, financially, they were bulldozers. They had big personalities. They took charge. They took no prisoners. And so I think I adopted that persona huh. in my professional career. Because I thought if you wanted a Mercedes and you wanted a vacation home and you wanted to be the CEO, you wanted to be in charge, then you had to be in charge. And that meant you were doing the talking, you were doing the designing, you were doing the leading, you were running the meeting, and you had to be dominant. I actually saw, I actually saw humility as a weakness. I thought humility was associated with people who were shy and quiet and retiring and meek. Well, I eat those people for lunch, (laughs) for lunch. And I did. Until they spit me up. So I think it was that. To answer your question, I think actually I adopted the personality of what I defined what success looked like from a conglomeration of people and became that person. Did your parents wonder who on earth they created? Did that happen? You know, I don't know. It's a good question. My parents are still alive and still oh, yeah. married. Gosh, six, today is my dad's birthday. As a matter of fact, they were taping this as my dad's Happy birthday, Scott's birthday. dad. Wow. Yeah, Kenneth Miller, I got to call him. Um, I don't know, but I think, you know, I was raised in a, in a very stable environment. Mm. I was raised as a Catholic. I'm still a Catholic. I am raising our three sons as a Catholic. My mother is a Methodist. We were raised in a Christian home where my mother did not work. She was a full-time mom. And my dad went to an eight to six kind of job. Sure. My parents were both raised in very unstable families. My dad's dad died when he was 10. His twin brother caught polio and died. My mother's parents were alcoholics. We were raised where stability was the number one value in our family, stability over love, joy, happiness, frivolity, fun, touch. Stability was everything. And so I think I kind of broke out of that. And I'm a little more entrepreneurial, a little more risk prone than my parents are. I mean, I would say I was adopted, but my brother and I look identical. So I don't think I was. (laughs) Probably not. But my parents instilled in me a great work ethic. They instilled in me a, an abundance mentality, yeah. a sense of gratitude. I just lacked the humility gene that they tried to transfer onto me. <laughs> I answer this question a lot when when I get interviewed and, and I've written about it a fair bit. But if 53-year-old Scott could talk to 23-year-old Scott based on everything that 53-year-old Scott has learned, what would he say? One is recognize when your strengths, when overplayed, become your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Because I've sometimes, not sometimes, I have frequently 
underestimated what it's like to be in a relationship with me. And when I say relationship, I might mean meeting. I might mean carpool. I might mean trade show booth. I might mean in variety, right? It's because none of us are nearly as self-aware as we think we are. I still, to this day, don't fully understand what it's like to be on the other side of a microphone with me. Mm. That's one thing. Second, I think I would probably care less what people think about me. Hmm. Okay. I I definitely care. Well, they sound like a contradiction, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I do care if you think I have strong character. Hmm. I do care if you think I am trustworthy. I do think, I do care if you think I'm dependable. I don't care if you think I'm smart, a good writer, a bad podcast guest, a good podcast host. I've stopped living my life in with the approval of other people. Hmm. I've stopped that. Because as you know, as you step into the public eye, you know, there are blogs dedicated to my hair, to my glasses. <laughs> some people hate me. Some people stalk me because they love me. I mean, you know, you can't be all things to all people. You got to kind of find your tribe. And so I've stopped caring less what people think about me. And I examine my motive more. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying that? Why am I pursuing that? What's my motive? Sometimes it's pure. Mm. And sometimes it's nefarious. Good people have hidden agendas. Good people with high character have nefarious thoughts. And so I have to ask myself, am I more concerned with being right or doing right or Mm. finding right? Mm. And I'm not always clear on the motive. So I have to actually, you know, you know, exercise my conscience. You must have had some great bosses. I mean, to become the head of marketing for Franklin Covey, which is a very large, influential organization. What what did your bosses do well in your career to date yeah. to help you yeah. to help you succeed in a company when your personality is so big and sometimes works for you and yeah. occasionally works against yeah. you? What did, what did your bosses do well? What a, what a generous question. Generous me because I think it's it turns a spotlight onto those people. You know, I was taught something at Franklin Covey that changed my complete leadership philosophy. And that was the idea of pre-forgiveness. Not just forgiveness, but pre-forgiveness. Scott, you're going to do things that are going to piss people off. You're going to say things that are, you're pre-forgiven. Now, you can't be pre-forgiven for the same thing seven times. So, you know, there, you know, there is, there are, you know, there's a culture that you have to align to. There are values that you have to learn. But I was pre-forgiven on many occasions when I didn't even know it. And oftentimes my leaders protected me from myself. Huh. It took me on a walk around the parking lot. It took me in the Wagoneer to get a cup of coffee at Einstein's Bagels to say, hey, so how are you feeling this going? What's working for you? What's not working for I mean, I, you? Know, I'm like, oh, jeez. You know? yeah. So I had so many great leaders that believed in me more than perhaps I believed in myself. They judged me by the totality of my contribution. They're like, man, we've got lightning in a bottle. We've got, and his name is Scott Miller. The problem is, you know, if you put any animals in there, he will like kill them and he might even like shock himself and he might even, you know, burn the house down. So I think I was the recipient of a lot of courageous conversations. Like the one, Scott, you're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match. That was a metaphor for (laughs) Scott. If you do that again, you're fired. And so I do believe I've been the recipient of a lot of leaders that moved outside their comfort zone. And they had radically candid conversation with me around my blind spots, around my self-image, around the way that I was being received by people. Scott, you can't do that. Scott, you can't say that. Scott, when you do this, here's how it's interpreted. Scott, that's genius, but that's a thought you keep in your head and you should not ever share again. And so I've been the recipient of, to your point, wonderfully abundant people that I often write about and give credit to in the books on the podcast and that believed in me more than perhaps I believed in myself at the time. How did you, how did you hear that in a healing way? Because there's a lot of young leaders, like if you go back a decade or two, who would hear something like that and go, Oh, okay, I'm quitting. I'm leaving. I I don't, I don't like this kind of feedback. And, you know, I've tried to grow more open to feedback as I've gotten older, but I'm not naturally open to feedback like that. How did you, or did you, hear that as a gift? Carrie, I don't think you're alone in that. I don't think most of us are as open to feedback as we all say we are. <laughs> in fact, most of us aren't open to feedback, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. 
We all have brands and we all have feelings and we often confuse our self-esteem with our self-confidence and our self-worth. I write about that in mm. Master Mentors Volume 2. Uh, we use them interchangeably. You know, I, I learned a very valuable lesson when I moved to Utah. And that is, I'll share this. This is might resonate with your audience. I told you I was Catholic, right? Yeah. So I worked for the Walt Disney Company and they invited me to leave huh. after four years. Different story. Read my books for that one. But so where does that single Catholic boy move? Well, of course, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are, right? <laughs> I mean, no, there were no Catholics in Provo, Utah. So I came here like a serious bull in a China shop. And, you know, this is a fairly evangelizing community. Yeah. Utah is, right? And not a faith that I'm a member of, but a faith that I have great respect for and have lived, you know, in this state for 26 years now and learned to thrive very well amongst a community of very different and some like-minded people. Long story short, I came here with a bit of a badass label, kind of don't tread on me, really thick skin. I kind of used my Catholic badge mm. as a bit of a shield. And honestly, I think I needed it because, you know, Provo, Utah wasn't exactly a a, a welcoming community 25 years ago to a non-member of that faith. It's sure. a very exclusive faith, very inclusive, meaning you're either in or you're out. Right. There's no middle ground. That's not That's not meant to be deleterious. It's just factual. <laughs> so. I, I developed thick skin, very thick skin. The problem is I've learned from Viola Davis, the famous actor producer, that the problem with thick skin is nothing gets in, but nothing gets out. Mm. And so instead of developing thick skin, she would say develop translucent skin, transparent skin. Ah. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. You keep what's valuable and you leave what's not. And I think that's been valuable for me to really understand be open to someone giving me feedback. It's going to hurt. You know, rarely when someone says, can I give you some feedback? Do you think they're going to compliment me? It's never positive. <laughs> it's always critical. And if you believe they have your best interest at heart, if you believe they love you enough to risk offending you, to risk violating your, your precious bubble around you, if you believe they have your best interest at heart, Say, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. It might take me a few minutes to come around. I might not like it the first minute, but you know, give me three minutes to come around. And that's what I usually do is I usually smart. It kind of hurts. And I say, hang in there. I got to process this out loud. Don't judge me in the first two minutes. Judge me on the last 30 seconds. I'm going to come around to this. And, and I usually compartmentalize the feedback. And I ask myself, do they have my best interest at heart or not? Mm. And if I believe that they do, then I try to absorb the feedback. You know, I, I've never heard anybody say that where it's like, hey, I'm just give me, give me, judge me by the last 30 seconds. Give me a few minutes to come around. I'm going to use that when I get triggered and it's less yeah. and less as you get older, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to put that one in my pocket and pull it out when I need it. So you got it, brother. If my math is right, you also got the chance to work with the legendary Stephen R. Covey, uh, author of yeah. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective people. And, um, you know, you're in senior management in the company. He died about a decade ago. Is that correct? Passed away about a decade right. ago. Right. Right. What was it like yeah. to see Stephen R. Covey mentor people? I don't know whether he mentored you in particular, but can you, can you talk yeah. about his yeah. legacy and how he treated people? Because he, he is, was a giant. I can't, I spent close to 15 years of my first 25 years. You're right. He passed away a decade ago as a result of a head injury from a bicycle accident. It had a helmet on, but it wasn't tight enough. The fact of the matter is Dr. Covey had been in some declining health and was out of the public eye. Mm. And I mean, this charitably, that might have been even a blessing in some ways. Um, the man had, I think, impeccable integrity. Mm. He was the real deal. He walked his talk. To answer your question, I think he had an unnatural ability to affirm the worth and potential and other people. He was a man of tremendous religious faith. Mm -hmm. We didn't share that faith, mm -hmm. right? He was a Mormon. I was a Catholic, and we would joke about that. I was actually, I was, you know, for many years, the only non-Mormon on the executive team. There wow. was 10 of them and one of me. And we all went to each other's baptisms and weddings and confirmations and mission send-offs. And, you know, we all were one big family. Religion did not define you. But of course, when you're friends with people, you know what they're, what's going on in their life, right? So you talk about it, you share very public in his faith. But I think his uncanny talent was affirming the worth of other people. 
making people feel seen and heard. And it's something I'm not great at. Mm. And I'm trying to improve because of my efficiency paradigm, because of my productivity mindset. I like to move things on. And I've got to be more disciplined, more deliberate in slowing down and really understanding what's going on with that person. Why are they behaving that way? They're behaving that way for a reason, not because they're a sociopath. Less than 10% of the world are sociopaths. But what's going on in their life, in their marriage, with their finances, with their children, with their parents, with their education, with their last boss? Why are they acting that way? And I interviewed Dr. Daniel Amen. He's a famous neuroscientist a few weeks ago, has a new book out called You Happier. I highly recommend this book, okay. You Happier. And he based on how to become happier based on the neuroscience of the brain. And one of his tips, Carrie, this is going to sound fairly pedantic. One of his tips to live a happier life was the people in your life, whether they're your partner, your spouse, or your pastor, or your board, or whoever it is, focus more on what you like about them versus what you don't like about them. Most of our minds mm. go negative on people. It's we true. fix we it on negativity what bias. we don't like about people. When instead, think about things that you like about people. And Dr. Covey did that. He always found something in you that was a spark he could help ignite. Hmm. He was very present in the moment. You hear how Bill Clinton famously was always present in the moment. I'm not a raving fan of his, but you know I think he's um, done some things in hindsight that were probably wiser than we gave him credit for, and hmm. others are big fans of his. But you always heard he was very present in the moment with people. When you were in his presence, it was all that mattered was you. And I think Dr. Covey shared that discipline that unnatural ability not to get distracted. All of us have a attention deficit mm -hmm. in 2022. Sure. For some of us, this is a diagnosis, and for others, it's just life. And I think as leaders, when you can build that unnatural discipline to be in the moment with people, the dividends are incalculable. You know, one of the things that's interested me is Dr. Covey easily could have been an author, speaker, and when he died, the company dies, right? That happens a lot to, mm. to people. But Franklin that's, Covey, we've had a yeah. number of different guests from yeah. Franklin Covey on this podcast, and um, it's thriving. I don't know. It might even be bigger than yeah. it was a decade ago when Dr. Covey passed. Yeah. How does that, yeah. how did that happen? What, what happened? Yeah. I mean, obviously he was yeah. such a big presence, and I know you merged with uh, Franklin to become Franklin Covey. Correct. But um, can you talk a little bit about how a company outlives its founder? Because we have a lot of leaders who've started churches, started companies, started organizations, or are such a big presence that when they go, the organization's probably going to go too. So I have my perspective on this. Sure. And being a member of the executive team, I think I'm right, or at least accurate. Uh, I give credit to our chairman and our CEO, Bob Whitman, Bob Whitman did not want the company to be guru-centric ah. because, you know, look at the Atkins diet, right? I mean, look at, look at so many. As soon as the founder dies, the whole company implodes. And so for many years prior to Dr. Covey's passing, Bob began to build a firm that was not dependent on any one person, one methodology, one book, or one personality. That's a dangerous slope. Uh, Dr. Covey had been out of the day-to-day -day operation for a decade. He was on the board of directors, but had not had a you know a day-to-day handle. So the around two thousand, he was Correct. sort of moved into. That's and right. when did you merge with what was it? it? Was a Franklin Journal company? When when did that happen? So in, in nineteen ninety-seven, the Franklin Covey Company merged with the Covey Leadership Center gotcha. and became Franklin Covey. It really was an acquisition. No one knows that, but the Franklin Quest Company bought the Covey Leadership Center. Both founders have since passed dear friends of mine, Hiram Smith and Stephen Covey. But it was really Bob Whitman who came to the firm and he realized this company has got to last for centuries. I mean, look at Peter Drucker. Mm, true. Arguably the most influential mind. There is no Peter Drucker organization. There's some little, little tiny things, but quite frankly, it's nothing. And I'll tell you, I fear for Jim Collins mm. because Jim Collins hasn't built an enterprise, I think, that is larger for him. And I think Kim Blanchard has, but many haven't. So it was Bob Whitman that realized we've got to have systems and processes and strategies and a culture and a group of people that can think broader mm. than just Dr. Covey without minimizing him. This book still sells 5,000 copies a week. I know, that's crazy. 10 years it's after always on the back, always on the bestseller list, always. Right, right. 
And so there are 60, not 60, that's not true. There are about 30 content areas that are broader than just Dr. Covey's thinking, whether it be around change management or, or strategy execution. Obviously, he uncovered a set of principles that govern our methodology, but it was very deliberate to make sure that the firm could thrive. And to your point, it's much more even healthy now, bigger, more impactful than even when Dr. Covey was alive. And tribute to his legacy. Wow. And did, did, I mean, I'm not asking you to out anybody, but um, I mean, obviously I'm going to assume yeah. he didn't feel threatened by that, right? Did he think that was a good thing? Because I know a lot of founders who I don't feel think threatened he did. by that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he did. I think uh, maybe some of his family did at times because mm-hmm. his family still had a presence. But I mean, keep in mind, we are a public company. Yeah. So we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, our investors, our, our employees, our clients. So the company doesn't exist to serve any one person right. or any one group of people. This company is bigger than just us. We're stewards of this for centuries to come. And that was the philosophy of our chairman, Bob Whitman, who was also very dear friends with Dr. Covey. They didn't see everything eye to eye, but I really credit our chairman almost singularly mm. for having the vision to diversify the opportunities broader than any one or two authors or gurus, if you will. So master mentors, everybody would love a mentor. Everybody would love to rub shoulders with some of the gurus that they see out there. What is your advice to particularly think about, think about leaders without a platform, leaders without a, a big prestigious position who are saying, you know what, Scott, I need a mentor. What, what is your advice to that young leader in that position? Well, I am qualified to offer this because it just so happens I'm writing a new book for HarperCollins called The Ultimate Mentoring Guide. There you go. And there are, there are about 14 to 15 roles that mentors play. So stand by for that book. Sure. Let me answer your question. I'm going to redefine mentorship hmm. because I think oftentimes we think a mentor is someone on the fourth floor or in the C-suite or has a C-title. They have to be older and wiser and more accomplished. And that's not true. Huh. My... The most influential mentors in my life have never met me, and they don't know I'm even alive. Mm-hmm. I've read their books. I've listened to their podcast. I listen to their radio. They don't even know I exist, but yet they've had the most profound impact on me. And so I would redefine how you characterize, not you, how we characterize mentorship. Yes, there is great value in calling up and being part of a mentor program in your organization or forming one or matching Carrie and Scott and having Carrie mentor Scott on how to run a decent podcast (laughs) or how to ask great questions. That absolutely has value. You should have that person in your life. You should clearly identify what is the role of the mentor and what is not their role and what is your role as a mentee and set boundaries so you don't cross those. I'm a strong advocate, unabashed advocate for having mentors in your life, formal and informal. But I would say to you, because you want to be the next, you know, large pastor author, large congregation author, does not mean that Joel Osteen has to be your best friend or T.D. Jakes. You know, I can think of lots of people that could help you build that with business experience, Mm -hmm. with reputational experience, right? With doctrinal experience, whatever it is. So- doesn't mean that Joel, Joel Osteen can't be your mentor, formally or informally. They also can't if you don't ask. But don't limit yourself to that. You can study people's paths to success and gain enormous and valuable wisdom from them to be mentored by them, having them never met you or know you even are alive. Hmm. What's, uh, what's the greatest reward you have in podcasting? Like, what would you say? Like, oh, this is why I do it all the time. My, my knee-jerk action is when... A person of significant influence calls me up and says, hey, could you connect me to so-and-so? Wow. That's always validating. Like when a four-star general calls you and says, hey, will you connect me with, you know, ambassador, huntsman, or governor, so-and-so? It's always, it's always great because they trust me. They trust me to make a discreet, mutually beneficial connection. That's what, that, that's what was my first knee-jerk reaction. But that's actually not it. Of course, that's valuable and, and affirming. Mm. What's more valuable, there is, um, there happens to be, this is purely serendipitous, there happens to be a woman who I discovered is a Catholic nun. I think she's in Indiana. And she sends me an email every couple of episodes and tells me what she likes and didn't like. (laughs) And 
Ir irrespective of whether I'm, it could be, it could be a flower shop owner. It could be an elementary school principal, but there's this, there's a sister in Indiana. I don't know who she is. I've never seen a picture of her, but she sends me these emails and she deconstructs my interviews almost always lovingly and charitably and talks about what she learned from them. And to me, I think, you know, this is a person that's selflessly given of her life to a cause greater than herself. You know, given up family, given up legacy with, you know, children and a love affair with a, you know, a partner or whoever. And here she is listening to my podcast wow. about marketing or sales or leadership or culture. And so it's those types of emails that come in multiple times a day. You get them all the time. I read every single one. I respond to every single one to my publicist whore. Like, what are you doing? Well, I've blocked out four to six today to respond to the 70 emails. What are you doing? Yes, this, these are the people who made this podcast. It wasn't me. It was them listening and, you know, sharing it and buying the books of the people. So that's the most validating part when Sister Claire sends me an email and, you know, either gives me a tip or she gives me a validation. Oh, that's fantastic. Scott, any other final thoughts for our leaders today? No. Oh. Carrie, thanks for your abundance, man. I appreciate you shining the spotlight on, on contributors like myself. I'm trying to do the same thing. And I, I appreciate all that you're doing to raise the legacies and affirm the potential of those that are listening and watching your podcast. Thanks for being a light as well. Well, thanks for being willing to go there too and answer some uh, some different questions. That was really, really interesting. Scott, I'm grateful. The book is called Master, Ment Master Mentors. Let me get it right. And it's available everywhere books are sold. People want to find you online. Where would they discover you these days? Well, that would be hard to miss me, according to my wife. And that wasn't a compliment she paid me. She thinks I'm overexposed. So you can visit me at scottjeffreymiller.com. You can visit franklincovey.com and subscribe to the podcast. My books are sold everywhere. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, you name it, I am there. Okay, Scott, thanks so much. Thank you, Carrie. I so appreciate Scott's vulnerability. We're all growing as leaders, aren't we? And if you want show notes, you can get that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 488. Also coming up, I've got uh, an interview with Vanessa Van Edwards. Just completed that recently. It'll be up in a, in a little while. So if you don't want to miss it, subscribe because she talks about like, it's like a masterclass on self-awareness. Just all the cues you send, visible and invisible, the things you don't even know are tripping you up or the things you could change just a little bit to get a lot more. <laughs> like, basically, she teaches you how to become a charismatic leader. So that's coming up if you enjoyed this episode and the self-awareness part, and you'll get that automatically when you subscribe. You'll also hear from people like Andy Stanley, Susan Kane, Daniel Pink, Albert Tate is coming up. We've also got uh, Jackie Hill Perry, Dave Adamson, and so many more. But next episode, it's Shauna Nequest. Here is part of that fascinating conversation with Shauna. I said, um, I want to talk to you guys about something. Um, I, You guys are like superstars. You are, You do amazing jobs. You do huge jobs. You're on the stage all the time. You're making massive decisions for our church. You're, you're, you're rock stars. You're record setters. I, um, I'm not like you and I'm not going to be like you. And I, um, have tried to keep up an intensity that is breaking apart the most important things inside of me. And I need to let you know, it's going to change. Um, but I was like, like basically asking them permission, um, to make those changes. And I said, I'm not going to be your like cool, famous friend anymore. I'm going to be like, just like a nice lady who loves her life. And I'm not going to be, there's not going to be anything impressive about me. So that's next time on the podcast. want to thank our partners for this episode. Thank you to Leader. Go to leader.com to find out how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention my name, give them the promo code CARRY. You will get 20% off your first year. That's C-A-R-E-Y. Use that promo code at leader, L-E-A-D-R.com and get your free copy of Belay's new book, Delegate to Elevate, by texting my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 today. That's Carrie to 55123 and get a copy of their new book, Delegate to Elevate. Well, if you like this episode, you can get a lot more over at the Art of Leadership Academy. We have a growing tribe over there every day. I am working with leaders directly. And if that interests you, I've even got a cohort starting soon. 
in that cohort is about how to grow your online influence. So you can uh, go to theartofonlineinfluence.com and you will register for the Academy through there. And if you're interested in working directly with me, space is very limited. Choose the cohort option and I'll see you inside the Art of Online Influence course, all of which happens inside the Art of Leadership Academy. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Really appreciate you. It's a privilege to be able to do this. And uh, well, we'll catch you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.